At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. If you've been following the Black Expat for a while, you might know that Carla Frazier is a familiar voice. She's been writing and contributing to the site for the past two years. What you may not know is that I've known Carla for a hot minute. I met her back in 2016 on a trip to Singapore. A colleague of mine knew I was heading to the nation and recommended I meet up with this contact of hers. At the time, Carla, a student affairs professional, was working at a university in Singapore, and we quickly connected on our similar careers in higher ed. And while Qatar was my first time working in education abroad, Carla, I learned, was not new to it at all. After years at working at American institutions domestically, she transitioned her student affairs career to an international one that has taken her to places as different as Dominica, Afghanistan, Niger, and the aforementioned Singapore, just to name a few. It is with that valuable experience and knowledge that Carla launched Rose Apple Global, a boutique consulting firm that focuses on offering support to international universities on student affairs protocols, as well as guide professionals who are ready to take their careers overseas. In this episode, Carla will share how her early cross-cultural years set her up for this vibrant career. She describes her purpose and why it's always at the center of her professional choices. She addresses the challenges and also describes why she built Rose Apple Global. I always joke that Carla has been everywhere, at least if it's warm. And by the end of this episode, you just might feel the same. Welcome to the Global Chatter. So we're here with the latest episode of the Global Chatter, and I have Carla with me. And I was thinking to myself before this episode, and it's funny because Carla's going to tell you her background and all that stuff, but I was thinking to myself right before this episode, I met Carla probably five countries ago in her <laughs> in her international story. Um, y'all have heard me talk about Singapore before, how I love Singapore. I'm pretty sure I've said that in an episode. That's where I met Carla. And it's funny to say that because that was about five years ago, which is crazy to think about it because she has lived <laughs> in multiple countries 
<laughs> since I saw her. And it was, the, it, I remember it was December, 2016. I was in Singapore on a holiday and someone who was a colleague in higher ed, which we're going to get into all of that, um, connected me to her. And I knew I was going to be in Singapore and said, Hey, we should meet up. And I met up with her on the day I was flying back to Qatar. And so it's not really full circle because honestly, y'all, if you listen to the introduction, I talk to her all the time. However, it's it's part of the circle or the ongoing journey. So Carla, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yes, it has been a long time, but not. Right. <laughs> five, five years seems like a long time. But, you know, when you put it in that context, five years in several countries. Yeah. No, it was no, it's weird because I was thinking to myself, okay, you're currently in Dominican Republic, which we'll we'll get to. But then I had to work backwards. I was like, all right, she was in Dominican Republic, but then she was in Niger. But then I think I I can't remember if you were in Bangladesh or if Malaysia was in between that or before that. And then you were so if if wherever Malaysia was, it was there, but <laughs> but you were in Bangladesh. Yep. And then you were in Singapore. I think I got all the countries right. Was there another country? Did I miss between there Singapore? Is one. Which what was yes. that? So I went from Singapore to Indonesia to That's Malaysia. It. I forgot. Because I, I think I for me, I always in my mind, when it comes to Indonesia for you, I'm like, well, that's just kind of where you go to recenter and vacation. You know what I mean? Like I, I thought of it yep. more as a she was vacationing, like, yeah, whatever. She goes to Indonesia all the time. So that's why I, I think that, that's why I forgot about it. I did not remember Indonesia. Okay. So really, it was Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Bangladesh, Niger. Niger. Dominican Republic. Okay. Well, if anyone sees a running theme, you like hot climates. <laughs> that's what. <laughs> that is true. You know what I think is real interesting and I know all the places you've been so far, but like what's really interesting is that your international story and so far does not include Europe. <laughs> like, I mean, you've been to Europe, mm-hmm. but, it, but it does not in terms of, oh, you up to move to Europe. That wasn't even, which is, I, I mean, I think that the places you've moved to are really interesting and places that maybe some people don't think about, but yeah, I was just, I was like mapping it out. I was like, yeah, she really did kind of, avoid Europe. <laughs> Not avoid it, but you know. Yeah. I tell people I stay around the equator in between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Cap- Capricorn. Yeah. Yeah. If they even know geography that deep though. I mean, I was, I know <laughs> I was what you're talking about. That. I feel like that's so specific. Do you, you need, <laughs> you need to actually know where those two are. Um, yeah. But wow. Yeah. So, but let's get into it because I, I think you have a real interesting story and and you know both you and I connect because we both are higher educators and student affairs professionals and and so I think there's a lot of really great nuances particularly with your background because I've had educators before um but they tend to represent the K12 space right when you look at especially the international landscape uh I did have Corey of course who you know who we talked about study abroad but we haven't right. really had anyone who's who has worked abroad at the university collegiate level, what we say in the states. And so, I think you've got a lot of a lot of great gems that are going to help people out. So, let's let's start from the beginning. So, 
I ask this question of everyone. Where did your international story begin? So where did you grow up? Did you travel? What's the deal? So I began in the U.S. was where I was born. About nine months later, I ended up in Jamaica as a child and then came back to the U.S. So I'm a third culture kid, very same respect that you are. And while I was in my teenage years, I traveled between Canada, the U.S. and Jamaica. So I, you know, that's my childhood travel was between those three countries predominantly. Um, and then once I got through college, you know, university, I started venturing out on my own to other places, Mexico, the Caribbean, other Caribbean islands, and eventually ended up in my career being abroad. Where did you grow up in? My family's originally from Jamaica. And so that's, that's home base. And I, I carried that around and that really has spurred. Um, how I am and what I do. And I tell my mother all this all the time. And she, she disagrees periodically, most of the time, that she gave me a passport at nine months. And what did you expect me to do after that? Right. Well, I was going to say, where did you, in the U.S., where did you grow up? So I grew up around the Chicago area suburb called Evanston. Most people know it for particularly Northwestern. Western, right. No, for, forget that part. How did I not know that you even grew up in Chicago? Seriously, I talked to you all. The, I'm pretty sure I was texting you yesterday. I had no idea you grew up in Chicago. <laughs> yep. Wow. Okay. Downtown Chicago is where I hung out as a teenager. Really? Okay. Yes. Grant Park. Buckingham Fountain, the lakefront, Taste wow. of Chicago. I, My prom was in the Hilton downtown Chicago. <laughs> I, re- I I did not know this. Okay. Well, I guess it's like people who meet me all the time and then they go, I listen to some podcast you were on and I'm like, how did I not know about this, about this information about you? I've known you for years. And I'm like, well, I guess if it has no reason to come up, it's... <laughs> and I also think with international it's people, it's really funny, right? Like we... We get the general, where did you grow up? And it might be like country, but uh, we don't necessarily go into, oh, what part of Sweden or what part of Nigeria necessarily, right? Exactly. We're just like, oh yeah, you grew up in whatever. And then we move on to like why you're not living there anymore. Okay, so you <laughs> you grew up and here, okay, so this is what I do now because I <laughs> I think this is really interesting. So you, and, you grew up in Chicago, obviously grew grew up at least traveling in North America, which is significant because there are plenty of people who don't necessarily go to Canada or to, you know, at least Jamaica or the Caribbean, even though they're, you know, in the region. So I think that that's, that's significant travel. But then you decide you went to college in North Dakota. Is that correct? I did. Okay. I feel like that is a cultural <laughs> shock from Chicago. It was. Um, I don't like coal. And um, once I graduated, I never went back. Um, but I also used to go to Canada because the Canadian border was 45 minutes away. So Winnipeg was another place that I used to hang out in my college days. So this international thing has been going, you know, in all kinds of circles throughout the entire time of my life. So what did you study in college? So I have a degree, my undergrad is in history and political science, and then I went to grad school in Ohio, um, and Southern Ohio, and got a degree in international affairs, focusing on Latin America and a little bit of the Caribbean. 
What did you think you were going to do? Because I, I, I always think it's real interesting when I talk to anyone. I mean, I, I love talking about careers in general, but you know, when people get these degrees, what, what, what did you sort of envision you were going to do with it? So my story of education is I wanted to go to law school and the LSAT and I were not friends. Mm-hmm. Took it three times. We were not friends. Mm-hmm. And that led me to my, after my first time going to get my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy really after my master's degree was to go work for a multinational NAFTA, this this now dates me, the yeah. NAFTA, North yeah. American Free Trade Agreement, yeah. was in place when I came out of um, university. And I was like, oh, this is great. My degree is international affairs. It's Latin America. I can go work for NAFTA and NAFTA-related things. Now, while I was in grad school, I got into higher education and became a hall director. Mm-hmm. And that became my trajectory. But... Mm-hmm. In my dream days of being young and high school and even a part of college, um, wanting to go to law school, I used to say people, I wanted to be the next Madeleine Albright um, because Mm -hmm. to me, I really admired a woman being secretary of state and diplomacy and all of that. And so, yeah, I just took it a different route. (laughs) You know, and and the reason I I do ask that question is because what I think is really great is to see the different routes that take people international, right? That you can have a particular idea or plan and maybe you have to pivot, right? And you're, and here's the funny part. You're at least the second person I've had who said the LSAT situation, (laughs) like something happened and they were not going to law school. Um, Or in that case, maybe they didn't complete it, but you still found a way to go international now, but let's backtrack it. You were a hall director, which if you're not in higher ed, look, I I feel like there's so many people I know who get into higher ed because somehow they got through res life, residential life, right? As we call it. So res life, you somehow got in that way. I think it's interesting now because we see the rise of higher education admin degrees and whatnot. There's a whole generation of people that got into higher ed who you got a you got a job in college you got mm-hmm. some kind of you know what i mean i feel like yes. that's the bigger story of more people even though we see it more professionalized now you just got yes. this job because you needed a job to pay bills or housing or food and yes. then all of a sudden you're in student affairs <laughs> that is so true and typically it starts with being a resident assistant being that peer leader peer educator on the floor And then you're like, oh, I can do this as a hall director. And then the next thing you know, you're a director of residence life, you know, 10 years later. Right. (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking about my, my set, was it my sophomore year college roommate where she, she got, I forgot it was, it was something in res life where it's one of those things where there was no competition for the job. She just put her hat in the ring and I, it's, it's been some years later. She is still in student affairs and is very much in residential stuff at a very large university. And I just thought to myself, it literally, it wasn't because she was trying to study this. It was just, we were sophomores and something opened nope. up and then she ended up getting a master's in higher ed because she's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then 
I think she met her husband who was also doing, like, it's just this whole trajectory. Yeah. So, so you were in, you were in RA obviously, and that's, that's only for a short, a specific amount of time. What, what were the next roles you kind of transitioned to while you were stateside? So I went from being um, an assistant hall director while I was in grad school. And then my first full-time job out of grad school was being a full-time hall director um, and so I did the full-time hall director at a couple different schools, Illinois, Washington State, mm. um, took a dip into what was known as minority affairs back then. Mm-hmm. Um, just not the DEI space was really not, it was not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it. It was good, but it was not a, it's not, it, I didn't have that passion so I went back into higher ed in Ohio, this time in another in Ohio in Akron area, and then just continued that trajectory, um, took a stint out and become a corporate conference planner. So I did do a career change oh, wow. for a moment. Okay. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny. I think uh, because DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, belonging, et cetera, et cetera, is like the hot topic now. I think many of us remember when it wasn't (laughs) and remember and remember when programs were not even as nearly fleshed out as they are now. And it was difficult. Yes. Yes. And it wasn't funded. And you were the pariah on campus. And why were you doing this? Oh, my gosh. It is. I mean, it is like night and day. From, I mean, I I am at, you know, I work at the institution I was an undergrad at and just the level of resources and conversation now, I I mean, like I remember being a student and I was obviously a minority student. None of this existed. I mean, there was some stuff, but it was like not, not to this level. So I could imagine at least early on in your career even this whole conversation about DEI and what it looked like probably looked very different. And I'd love as we get further down and we take your career international, really talk about what those things look like in an international space. And so, all right. So at this point, you've worked at a couple of colleges in the United States. You took a dip out into the corporate world. How long were you in the corporate world? Two years. Okay. I mean, that's not bad. <laughs> you say it like, <laughs> I mean, I think, I feel like we're seeing the reverse right now where people are like, mm, let me go to the corporate space. Let me hop out of Ed, but that's not for this podcast. <laughs> that's, right, that's, that's right, for right. other reasons. Okay. So you were for two years. You came back. What did you come back into res life when you rejoined? I did. Okay. So you did res life for how many years? That's actually impressive. I, mm. <laughs> How long did you do it for? Yes, I my actually my first job abroad was Res Life as well. So I've done Res Life for at least half of my career. I see. I y'all see if y'all don't work in student affairs, you have to understand. There are just some areas where <laughs> I could not. I was talking to some colleagues and we were talking about Res Life, and I was like, nope, I can't. These these people's these people's children in dorm rooms. I. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and live and learn communities and I no, I no. I lived in dorm rooms so and I know what was going on. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with that. Oh. Let me tell you the two I, I'll tell you right now. The two areas of higher ed I in student affairs, especially I'm saying. I know away from, what the other one is. Do you? <laughs> conduct. No, not even. Although that could be no, I actually would deal with conduct. Oh! It's not conduct. You know what it is? It's just let me tell you. 
The other area I refuse to <laughs> touch, Greek life. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, no, I, I can see no, that. No, I can see I that. am lawsuit averse. <laughs> so, yes. Anyway, carry on. So, t- <laughs> I can see that. No, I, uh, I get the Greek life. I've not touched Greek life at see? all in any part of my career. <laughs> right. Um, so, yes, I get it. Um, no, I, conduct is mine. I, I mean, I do fine at conduct. I don't have any challenges, but it's not my favorite area. What I say about residence life, and I think this is why one of the reasons why people stay in it very long, mm. it is a microcosm of the larger student affairs division. Okay. The residence halls have everything that the bigger student affairs has in it. Um, and we do all of it. We do programming. We do conduct. We, um, yes, we deal with, you know, wellness. We do all of this stuff within the residence hall system that is this bigger picture of student affairs. And I think that's, that's, that's why you can just, you can move around. We do hiring. We do training. We, you know, yes. So it can give you longevity. You don't it ever can. have to leave residence life. And yet, I have no <laughs> desire to ever go near it. Once again, <laughs> people's children. Now, so, okay, but I, so you mm-hmm. said something that's kind of tri- triggered me because I didn't realize that this was what took you abroad. So, yes. What, at what point did you decide I'm going to take my career abroad? And how was that? What was the process and where did you go? So I don't necessarily know that there was a specific point. It's always been in the back of my head. That's why I got my international affairs degree. It's why I traveled was I wanted to live and work abroad. Um, and through my time working in the U.S., especially in my later years, i.e. when I worked at North Carolina State when I was <laughs> where you are, <laughs> um, I really started to heavily apply to whatever international positions I saw available. Um, because I was like, I want to go work in student affairs abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, this is now my career path. Um, and I did so. Um, and then I got a 3 a.m. phone call mm-hmm. for a position I had applied for that I forgot about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they woke me up and I was like, what? Hello. And the woman on the other line says, oh, did we wake you? I said, yes, it's like three. I looked at the clock. 3 a.m. She goes, oh, sorry. Can we call you back in like three, four hours? I was like, yes, please. Because <laughs> she said, this is, we're calling from the UAE. You applied for this job several months ago. And I was like, oh. I was like, oh my gosh. Wow. And so literally fast forward, um, there was no Zoom back then. Mm-hmm. So I actually had to go to a video conferencing center mm-hmm. where they would set up the video conference link and I would sit in the room and talk to the folks in the UAE 14 years ago, by the way. Yeah. Um, and interviewed in the room, there were six or seven other people on the other end. It was just me. Um, and another month after that, I got a call that says, hey, we want to hire you. And the process started. And so, Noah, what I say to people is I took my career abroad. I went from a residence life position in the United States to a residence life position 
in the UAE. I think that's a really key distinction because, you know, one of the things, obviously, when people are thinking about going abroad, you're obviously thinking the finances, you're thinking about how you're going to support yourself and you're thinking about your career. And depending on, and of course, we're talking about the context of higher ed with your career, but depending on what your individual career is, you may have to do that level of proactive work because there may not necessarily be mechanisms where, you know, some fields are a little bit more established, right? So I think medicine's a great example, right? Where Mm -hmm. every country tends to have their rules and regulations and you can kind of figure out Will your skill set, will your papers, will your documents be accepted, right? I think that education to a certain degree at the K-12 primary secondary level or teaching English is a little bit like that. But then there are many areas, including higher ed, and you and I have discussed this quite quite frequently, where you you have to advocate for what it is that you're looking for. And so- when like this opportunity, I, in my mind, I have a couple of places where I would think of where to look. How did you actually start your search? Like, did you go to particular websites? Did you go by country? Like, how did you even this? I know you'd forgotten about it, but how did you even know that there was an opportunity at you at this university in the UAE? So the two primary places that I had looked during this time period was the Chronicle of Higher Ed, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is has a job section. And that's one of the primary places. Many international schools, especially high tier schools abroad, will list there. The other place is higheredjobs.com, mm-hmm. where right now, if you go on that website, there's roughly 800 jobs abroad mm-hmm. between administration and faculty, mm-hmm. um, both remote, both in person. And so those are the two primary places that I looked when I started this process Mm -hmm. to live and work abroad. I can't tell you exactly where I found my initial job, but I know it was one of those two places. So really, I mean, I think to reiterate for the folks who who are listening is you looked, you started with the places where you would look for jobs in your field anyway. Mm-hmm. And then looked and found the international component because they had already teased out. And I know they do it now, at least a better job, but they teased out, okay, these are internationally yes. based jobs. These are U.S. based or Canada based or North America based jobs, right? Yeah. Yes. And so I, so where did you, did you go to Abu Dhabi or did you go to Dubai or did you go to somewhere else in the UAE? Um, neither Abu Dhabi or Dubai. I went to Alain. You know what? And that was, it was on my brain. And I, as I was saying it, I was like, you know what? <laughs> Honestly, there are more cities because it's the United Arab Emirates, right? right? So <laughs> exactly. I was like, but of course, Abu Dhabi and Dubai are the first ones. Okay. Did you even, like I had to ask people this, especially for like their first international posting. Did you even conceptualize like what this experience would look like? Like, had had you even been to the Gulf at that point? Did you know what to expect? No. Okay. Yeah. You're no. like me. When you get there, it's like when you first figure it all out. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, no, I had just done a lot of reading about the UAE and the Gulf in general. Um, of course, you know, the Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, all of that stuff had happened. I had that perspective, but then I went and read mm-hmm. to understand the country I was moving into. Um, one of the things I did after I got hired, my poor supervisor, and she's literally 
a friend now, a mentor, and my one of my biggest advocates. I sent her probably 20 to 30 questions mm. after I accepted the job. Mm. I said, hi, I need to know all these things. <laughs> Your supervisor in UAE. Yes, Very this cool. was to my supervisor. Very cool. And she literally, she patiently wrote back and, you know, shared what she knew. She said I needed to get other answers from other people. She then connected me with um, another colleague who was um, American Sudanese, um, but she was the other woman of color on the staff. And Mm. so she and I had a conversation um, and I was like, okay, I, I think I can do this. And I went through the process and got on the plane. No, and that's so good of her. Like I, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that after the break, because I think there are questions that people need to ask when they're going into opportunities. And I, when I had Ryan Haynes on and he's in the K-12 level, we talked about like the questions that him and his wife, his wife is, uh, she's white, he's African-American. He's a CCK, but we talked about questions that they ask about understanding, you know, the country, the culture, whatever, you know, in a lot of contexts before they get there. And so it's really interesting to hear you, of course, talk about that going going into the UAE and and really looking at that a higher ed context. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we're going to come back, we're going to pick up on living in UAE and then and then all the really funky places she's lived afterwards. I say funky, but like. You know, they're all different, especially Afghanistan. So we'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. So we are back. And as you recall, before the break, Carla had just walked us into her opportunity in UAE. And so she was talking a little bit about how her supervisor in the UAE was responding to these 30 questions that she asked, which, I mean, I think it's interesting to ask them after you accept. Sometimes you may want to ask the questions before you accept, but we all do what what we're going to do. And so how long were you in the UAE for? Um, two years. Okay. 
So at this point, you had been working in res life. You'd worked in higher ed extensively. Obviously, you took a dip out, went to corporate and came back. Now you're in this institution, the UAE. How was your job, like, how was your role or how was your job different than maybe in the U.S.? Um, I think the biggest difference was I was in a senior level. So my career not only took me abroad, but it also took me into a significant promotion. So career mm. advancement is one of the things that you can do when you move abroad. Um, so I was running a residence life department of roughly 9,000 plus beds, about 9,500 plus students in housing, predominantly females, Food service, um, medical care was under me, um, and all of that. So, you know, room assignments, managing staff. And my job was really to help the institution at the time um, transition to being more student-focused, student-centered in their residential living space. Mm-hmm. Um so I literally built a new resident assistant program, a new resident director program, moving it away from um, some of the more um, stringency and being more student focused. But again, keeping the cultural context in place. This is the UAE. It has it's an Islamic country. There are certain things that are uh, within the context that we need to respect and understand. And so I was learning those things at the same time, trying to transform using international standards from a Kuhawai and NASPA and things of this nature to build um, a transition and a new program um, with the team on the ground. Most of my staff were a mixture of Emiratis, mm-hmm. other nationalities, Egypt, Jordan, Palestine, There's lots of Egyptians, I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely a mix on the ground between the male and female staff um, that helped manage the student housing area. And then definitely some of my leaders were um, Emirati nationals. When I went to Qatar, I had a similar experience in that it's really interesting taking what you've done and what you've known kind of from a Western context and then tweak it to apply, in that case, to a Gulf nation and to their cultural context. Mm-hmm. Was this was this a university that had an American style curriculum, a Western style curriculum, or what what kind of what's what was there, or were they just an Emirati university that was building out developing their student affairs space? So this was a national university. It is the flagship university of the UAE higher ed um, higher ed system. So the federal system of universities have three branches. There was the flagship, there was an in-between, and then there was a community college system. So I was at the flagship university for the federal system. Um, So the other school was already ahead of the game. So the national university was actually playing catch up. Mm -hmm. And then the community college system, they were – here and there, depending on the school and where they were located, we're trying to do a bit of this. So the whole federal system was trying to be more student centric. Mm. So I and I didn't realize this because I know you have certainly worked at universities that had adopted a more hybrid or a or, or an American style or Western style system. 
I didn't realize that this was was the national um, Emirati part of the Emirati system. And so, were you having any experiences around culture shock, kind of moving to the Gulf? Because let you know, let's if we look at your travels, right? You'd been in predominantly North America, right? Yeah, I mean, you'd gone to the Caribbean, which is still part of this, part of the Americas, but. You know, I I I know my own experiences going there, but was there was there at at least when you first got there, were there some points where you're like, oh my gosh, this is really different? Um, yes, I would say yes. Um, I had never traveled to the Gulf. Um, most of my travels prior to moving abroad had been like um, adding Europe to that. I had been to Europe, but I'd never been to the Gulf region, and so. There were definitely, I think the biggest surprise that came to me was doing Ramadan and my first Ramadan there in the UAE. The way I explained it is night became day and day became night in the terms mm. of activities of the country. Right. So during the day, it was quiet. All the shops were closed. The restaurants were closed. You barely found any cars on the streets. Work hours were cut down to about four or five. Um, and then once everyone broke fast, usually between six and seven ish, depending on the time, the sunset, the place became lively. Like the yeah. malls were filled. Everyone was out to eat in dinner. The malls were open until two, three in the morning and everything that you would normally do in the middle of the day started to happen from about 7 p.m. until about 3 in the morning. And that was a real eye-opener for me. I was like, wow. <laughs> and literally, that was my reaction. Outside of that, um, I found my colleagues very friendly, very warm. I got invited to weddings in people's houses, um, you know, what is known as the Emirati Hospitality um, or, you know, the Gulf has a, a warm hospitality in, in general. Um, so I don't know that anything was a huge shock. I, I did truly start to understand my passport privilege, um, have, holding a U.S. passport um, and what that meant. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and in a, both a positive and a negative way. Um, but I think those were the things that really came to play for me. Mm. What month did you land in the UAE? I landed in October? No. September. It was the end of um, Eid. The first Eid had just happened. So Ramadan had my, I'd missed Ramadan. The first Eid had happened. I was there for the second Eid. And then I spent the my next year, I had my first Ramadan. I landed like September 1st or whatever. I have never been so hot in my uh, life. Like, story for you. I, and everyone who knows me knows I, once again, hang out in warm climates. Although lately I've been a little bit obsessed with cold climates. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I'm watching all these shows on people living in Alaska and Yukon, you know, and like no, remote you. parts of Canada. And I'm like, hmm, this is kind of fascinating. Uh, <laughs> it's really weird, actually. But I landed, it was like, it, it was not because I left the States August 31st. I landed and I have 
Never. And I have lived. <laughs> in, I lived in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. I lived in New Mexico in the desert part of it. I've lived in the American South. Like I've been to like South America. There's people like, I have never been so hot in my life. Like they warned me, they're like, okay, when the doors open. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and they, he was just like, oh my gosh, Muhammad looked at me. He was like, ma'am, <laughs> you need to get ready. And yeah. I said, what are you talking about? And I was like, I've never been hot like that in my life. The heat is, it does hit you. So the funny story I have about the heat is I knew that this was a hot climate. So I had lots of sandals. And so I could wear sandals to work as long as they were appropriate. I had lots of sandals. And so one day wore a sandal to work. I was walking out. So I had a little bit to walk to my car. And by the time I got to my car, the sole of my shoes was behind me about, you know, three, five (laughs) steps. (laughs) The sidewalk was so hot that the glue melted (laughs) and my sole of my shoes was behind me. I mean, this is so. And I literally, like, I, I literally, I didn't know if I should laugh or I should cry. And I was like, okay. I literally went to my apartment, drove, drove home, went to my apartment, and literally got online and started to look for thick sole shoes. And um, I'm, please, I'm not plugging any particular brand, but this particular brand became my favorite. Easy Spirit, because they had the thicker soles on their sandals, and they were cute. They were work-related. And I literally, I think I bought like seven or eight pairs of Easy Spirit (laughs) shoes and had them sent to me because I I could feel the heat through the bottom of my feet. I could never... I mean, it's hot. Like, I don't... You know how people get into these dumb conversations over humidity versus dry heat when it's like it doesn't hot matter no trees it doesn't matter <laughs> it's just it doesn't hot. matter it's so hot i i think i snapped i screenshotted my t- the temperature on my um on my phone i screenshotted it and i i put it up on facebook that year or whatever the day i would left and people just looked at it like what is that i'm like i I am sitting next to the sun, it feels like right now. It is so hot. And I, I mean, I think for me, it was just, there were parts of Qatar that reminded me of Northern Cameroon, which is Sahil, Sahara culture. You know, we've got Fulani tribes and whatnot. So there was some, and, and, and Cameroon has a significant Muslim population, right? So none of, none of, none of the call to prayers and, and all of that affected me one way or the other just because I'd I'd grown up hearing that but it was it was I think it was the lack of trees (laughs) that were indigenous because any trees I saw in Qatar were brought in for the most part from somewhere (laughs) and then I've been to Abu Dhabi and I'm like these trees are not from the UAE are these palm trees where are these trees from and so I I I think it was just like little funny things for me that was so different but it always comes back to the heat and you're right 
nobody in their right mind is going to be walking around during the day anyway, because it's so hot. And then to be fair, when I lived in New Mexico, nobody was walking around during the day <laughs> certain months either because desert, right? But in the evening, though, everybody's, everybody's out. out. And so that makes absolute sense. And so you were there for two years. And yeah. I always, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you talked about the hospitality because you know, sometimes people ask, well, how was your experience as a woman? How's your experience as someone who's not Muslim? How's your experience as all these things? And I would imagine, I mean, I've been to the UAE kind of similar to Qatar. You didn't have to cover, I nope, assume. I did yep. not. That's that's always a question that that's the number one so question I think people ask all the what, time. I will yeah. clarify though. I lived in Alain, which is a little bit m- more conservative than Abu Dhabi or Dubai. Mm-hmm. And again, Mm -hmm. within context, this was 14 years ago. So it was definitely still more conservative than it is today. Now, I remember my dress code was elbows covered, knees covered. Yeah. So whatever my clothes was, whether it was casual or business, my knees had to be covered even when I was sitting and my elbows had to be covered. So I had clothes that fit that both for both personal social life and my office wear. But other than that, I did not have to cover. Um, I did have to cover once because I went to a specific shake event where mm-hmm. um, women, everyone in the room that was a female had to cover. Um, no matter who you were, um, this was the the requirement for this particular event. But outside of that, no. Yeah, I mean, same. I, you know, I've, wore a lot of dresses because it was hot <laughs> yes. to be honest dresses you wanted, were your best friends you wanted things that air could move between so dresses are the thing by right? the way that's why they wear a bias right well that's why men also wear thopes like seriously yes. like you need the air moving i mean it makes sense but but here's the thing i also wore a ton of cardigans because you would be in buildings and it would get and it cold because it was so hot outside. And so, you know, same. I did not wear every sleeveless dress I had. I had a cardigan that matched with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that I would always be covered. I always made sure my knees were covered. But beyond that, you know, it wasn't I know for me, it wasn't really disruptive. But I, I know this often tends to be the questions people ask. They're like, oh, living in those areas, you know, did you have to cover? And I'm like, I mean unless it was something like you talked about where the circumstance of the situation asked for it, there wasn't an expectation. There was just more of an expectation that, you know, you just wouldn't show certain body parts right? <laughs> because that's, but that's everybody. Right. So don't show certain body parts. And that was that. So here's, here's, okay. So here's the thing. You were in UAE for two years. Yep. Is this when you then from UAE set when you went to Afghanistan? So from UAE, I came back home for two years. So I repatriated for two years in the middle of the economic downturn, as it was labeled in the United States. Right. Um, wow. And so partway through that, um, I worked in Nebraska in the middle of the cornfields. You know, it was, it was an interesting <laughs> experience. Um, senior leadership position at a small mm-hmm. state school there. And from um, Nebraska, I then hopped out of the United States again and went to Afghanistan. So how did that opportunity come up? Was it the same process as when you were looking for the UAE position or was that something that came on your radar through a different means? 
Um, it was through a similar process. Now, I will the the Afghanistan position has a unique story. In mm-hmm. 2011, I applied for that position and was offered the position. I was ready to go to Afghanistan. And literally, I needed to give my acceptance. Um, yes, I'm coming. And literally, the day before I was supposed to give my acceptance, there was a major incident in Kabul where I was going. Mm-hmm. And it was the in- international hotel there had been attacked. And I said to myself, if they attack the international hotel, what am I gonna? What am I doing there? Right. <laughs> right. Now that logic doesn't make sense because that's where they're going to attack. But in my mind right. back then, thinking about this, yeah. So I literally turned down the job in 2011. Mm-hmm. Took the job in Nebraska in 2011. Mm-hmm. It's rural Nebraska. I I didn't feel the job was great, but it was not for me. And the same position came up open again. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was like, okay, that's just speaking to me. <laughs> like, Carla, y- 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 you missed it. Let me give it to you again. Okay. So, I literally reapplied. Actually, I didn't reapply. I actually sent an email to the person who had hired me before. says, hey, um, I saw this open again. You know, would you reconsider me? I'm really ready to come this time, yada, yada, yada. So they wrote me back, asked me a couple questions. I answered them. And literally, I accepted and decided to go. So I left in 2012. So can I ask a question? Because I'm sure some people are wondering this. What... (laughs) What was the appeal <laughs> to go to Kabul, Afghanistan for you at that stage of your career? The appeal was the university. Um, this was an American style university in Afghanistan, co-ed. It is a U.S. funded project. One of the few that, you know, you all you heard about was the war and the terror groups, but this was a bright spot. This was women and young men and women getting an education U S style in the middle of the capital city. Um, And I follow positions and institutions based on my purpose. And my purpose is really to share American style education to others in countries where it is not likely their students can afford or will get the opportunity to come to the United States for an education. Hmm. Um, And so I went um, and I felt comfortable going the second time around. Um, You know, my faith was with me and I said, you know, that's it. So I'm sure as you're, as you are thinking you're going to Afghanistan, family and friends are thinking. (laughs) What is wrong with me? (laughs) You are neither soldier nor, (laughs) nor, why are you going to Afghanistan? Well, (laughs) right, right, exactly. And I said, it's for education, education (laughs) in the words of Nelson Mandela, education's a weapon. (laughs) So I'm about to provide (laughs) The best one to these students. So, okay. Because you are probably the only person I've had thus far. 
I'm thinking. Ah, no, there, no, I've had a couple of people go to Afghanistan. What? Okay, so what? What would you like to dispel? Because I'm sure much of the interactions and, and information that people have about Afghanistan, if they don't live in the region, is definitely through the news, right? And obviously through the lens right. of of the conflict, uh, which I think technically just officially ended. I mean, we don't have troops there anymore, so yeah. Uh, but yes, what so, what yes. are what are what do you think are some of the myths that people just misunderstand about that country? Um, I think one of the things is that the countries, they have a knowledge base that has longstanding history of education and a longstanding history of um, being in the forefront of many things. Now, the wars that have happened with Russia, the United States and various allies have disrupted that in many ways. but. What I want to say is that they're some of the most resilient people that I have ever met. I had students who literally said, Miss, I, I'm here at this university. And these are female students at the, at the risk of me getting acid in my face or at the risk of being injured because I want to rebuild my country, because I want to see a new Afghanistan, a different Afghanistan. I want to see girls going to school. Now, I will say that while I was there, I was in a period of what I would consider um, not politically deemed in any way. This is just my opinion of, of relative calm. It doesn't mean that things didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It meant that it was calm enough that um, we were not in lockdown. And I know lockdowns used for the pandemic these mm -hmm. days, but. Um, it's typically used in countries that are at political risk mm -hmm. as well. Um, so I was able to go out and about. So I went out to eat all the time, particularly on my weekends to the Korean restaurant or the Italian mm -hmm. or, you know, the French restaurant. Um, one of my favorite places was to go to one of the French restaurants that had an outdoor rose garden. Mm -hmm. Yes, roses. Roses are one of the most amazing things in Afghanistan. They grow everywhere and they're absolutely beautiful. Um, shameless plug is that if you go to my website, I wrote about my experience in Afghanistan and I have pictures of the roses on my story. Um, but the other thing was I had some amazing fruits, watermelon, the sweetest pomegranates I've eaten till this day. Mm -hmm. Um, the roadside, we would stop and get bread, fresh baked, non-type bread. Mm. Um, people were very warm and friendly. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean that there weren't threats. My biggest threat or the biggest fear I had wasn't being bombed or shot. It was about being kidnapped because then I became a prisoner of war and, you know, ransom and would be mistreated and all the things that may go with being mm -hmm. in captivity. Um, but that risk was worth it to see and be able to teach some of the students I did because I was teaching first year experience and be an academic advisor. Um, and the skills I gained by just being in Afghanistan that I probably would not have gotten mm. 
elsewhere because getting into academic side and academic advising and teaching is not always easy, but I was able to do that. Um, so those are the things I want to just talk about. It's, it's not that there wasn't threat, but um, I was in a point where I was still able to go within the city. I couldn't travel outside of Kabul. Mm -hmm. um, our institution had stopped that travel because various parts that we were originally, people who were in the university before could go, um, were increasingly under threat. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, during my time there, I wasn't able to travel out, but I did travel within the city and around and most of it was all about food. You know, I think, um, and this isn't limited to Afghanistan, but obviously with the recent final withdrawal of the U.S., at least military presence, you know, when you, I think when you've been an expat and you've traveled and you know places and you see places, it's always something to sort of see them on the news when you have mm -hmm. experienced a place. And, you know, and, I, and it's, it's always an interesting question because I've asked this of folks who, who have come from places and lived in places where then there were uprisings and there was conflicts and there was, you know, a shifting politically or militarily. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine right. for you, you know, you know, seeing kind of the wind down in August, there, there is, there is some emotional tie for you because that's somewhere that you actually know and have lived and you did life with, right? I And I think if, you know, you watch the news or kind of follow social media, for example, people in the military who'd been, you know, who'd served and whatnot, there, there's an emotional tie, what having been in those countries. And so mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to always hear from folks who've absolutely actually experienced a place <laughs> kind of talk about it because these are the things that we would never hear, right? I don't know if anyone who hadn't actually been there could talk about the hospitality of people or talk about the fruit, right? Or talk about, you know, it, it, when you said, yeah, there was this Korean restaurant, my brain was not thinking <laughs> she's in Kabul and would get Korean food. <laughs> Shout out to the Korean, you know, the Korean entrepreneur that was like, let me go ahead and make this restaurant happen. But you know what I mean? It, I think this is why it's so interesting to hear people's stories because it colors in the gray in the gray for us uh -huh. so often. And so you were, how long were you in, in, in Afghanistan? Um, just under a year and a half. And I honestly, I tell people I would have stayed longer, except that um, with two friends, acquaintances, one from U.S. military, one from British military, said, look, the upcoming elections happening um, and things are going to get rougher going into the election right before the election. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very true. So I left in September. The election was held, I think it was that following March. Mm -hmm. But that leading up to the end of the year, the beginning of the year mm -hmm. of um, was really tough on the country. There was lots and lots of incidents within the city and around the country in general, leading into the presidential election um, of which the president who just went into exile was the person who was elected. Right. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I was randomly thinking the other day, has he, 
<laughs> do we know where he is currently? But I imagine the safety, mm-hmm. his safety, and we don't want to get into all of that. Uh, but it, for his safety, no. he wisely told nobody when he peaced out and stayed what two, all of two seconds in Tajikistan and then was out of Tajikistan. And I was like, yeah, I don't know where he's going, but it ain't it ain't to Afghanistan. <laughs> so so it is, right. it is what it is. So, I mean, here's the, so here's the thing you've, I mean, since Afghanistan, right. You went to Singapore next. Is that right? No. Dominica. 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 Okay. I I was like, I knew you went to the Caribbean. (laughs) Um, but, but you know, you, your, your higher ed career has continued since the, I mean, it's, that's been the thread. My question is then, is that you've been like, for people who are thinking about this type of work, right? What are the things that you're seeing that folks really need to consider? Because, you know, and 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 they would have heard this in the intro, you have your own consulting practice with Rose Apple Global where you are certainly, you know, working both with individuals and groups and organizations as far as student affair practices and 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 and, and work is concerned. You know, what are the things that you're sort of seeing? Like, what are some of the common threads in terms of issues when it comes to working in these institutions, whether they are Western style or they're local style um, as a student affairs professional? I think the thing that you have to be cognizant of, and I'm going to say it again, is you have to make sure that you're understanding the cultural context of country, the institution, and what you are bringing. Those things have to blend together in order for you to do your best work. Mm. That That is literally it. And you can find yourself misaligned mm-hmm. um, at institutions that are is going one way and you're going the other way. Um, and, and, and it does happen, but if you're being very diligent, then um, you can still do good work for the students of the institution, um, leave an impact on staff and staff development. Um, That is a huge area. Student affairs is a U.S. philosophical, theoretical framework. Mm -hmm. Um, Canada has taken it on significantly, parts of Europe, but the rest of the world really hasn't. They're just now coming into being student-centered, student-focused, student-centric. So taking that student affairs knowledge that you have from the U.S. and Canada to other places in the world, they're wanting that, but they're wanting it within their context, and you need to think about that. We have known that technology was always going to be part of higher education. COVID has told us it's now. Mm-hmm. And so knowing the technology and the skills with behind um, online, virtual, hybrid, blended learning will be an important part if you're going to go into higher ed moving forward. Um, Another thing, entrepreneurship and being innovative in those spaces is part of what's happening around the world, especially on the continent of Africa, in Southern and Southeast Asia. 
because these economies don't have what it takes to sustain um, a, a large employment without a huge entrepreneurship base. So again, making sure that your framework and your minds around that. Um, these are three the three big things I can think of to tell you if you want to go work in higher ed abroad. These are the th- things that you need to be thinking about. Mm. I mean, you're right because we talk about this all the time. <laughs> People want this. I mean, I, yeah, it, it, and it's true. Student affairs really is an American, North American concept, right? And then I think if you're making that transition to working internationally, that's where having that cultural competency and, and, and willingness to say, okay, how can I take what my knowledge and expertise is and frame it and phrase it in a way that works in a Singapore where you've been, a Niger where you've been, you know, an Afghanistan where you've been. Because I think, and, but I think that's for all of us really, is that often there's a way we are trained and we know how to do our jobs in our home countries. But then when you decide to be an expat and go abroad, you have to figure out how to take the expertise, but let it, let it, let it be flexible enough so that it can be adaptable and workable in a new country. And I think that's something you've done really well. I mean, you know, I honestly, you've been to so many places I can't go down, (laughs) go down the list, but you know, even I, I think you would even say even in the U.S., You've worked at a lot of institutions and had to kind of adjust whether it was yes. a small, private, large state, somewhere in between urban, rural. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You still have to do that in the U.S. Um, and there is regions in the United States and regionally there are things and nuances you have to manage as well. Um, abroad, and depending on the country you're in, you know, you may also have a language component to contend with when you are working and translating that knowledge that you are bringing, that expertise you're bringing it into another language and the context that the language may have that may not completely translate to what you're doing. So as we start to start to wind down, there's, there's one thing I definitely want you to address and answer because I, I know that this is always a common question and I know you get it. If an individual is really thinking about going into higher bred abroad, so international ed, <laughs> taking their expertise and whether staff or faculty and want to go outside of their home country, what are a couple of things or pieces of advice you would give in terms of how someone can start that search or, or get that their career going? Sure. I think first thing, know your purpose. Know why you want to take your career abroad in higher education. If you can figure out that purpose personally and professionally, then that helps you drive to the next piece, which is making sure that your credentials, your resume, your cover letter, and your LinkedIn profile are up to date and speak to the fact that you want to go abroad. Um, when you are at the table, you want to make sure that whoever is looking at those documents can say, oh, you know what? Yes, she's from Georgia, but oh, I see that she has an interest in being abroad. Not that your documents are very U.S. centric and U.S. focused. You have to demonstrate that to them, that you're willing to come. 
Um, and then you'd start to get into your job search and, you know, looking in the right places, making the right connections, the networking. LinkedIn's great for that. Um, the student affairs conferences, both the ones that are here in the U.S. and abroad are great for that. And now you can attend a lot of student affairs conferences that are international because we're virtual. So take on those opportunities. Um, and then apply. Now, I will tell you that unlike the K through 12 system where there are search companies and re research, um, recruitment companies, higher ed doesn't have that. So this is very much an individual search that you will end up doing and applying. Sometimes it will be easy as sending a resume and a cover letter to an email. Sometimes it will be an online process where you have to fill out a couple questions and attach things. And sometimes it will be a longer online process where you do have to fill everything in and then still attach. So it may vary. Realize that you will have interviews. Your interviews will 98% be virtual. Unless you're going for a VP, dean position, that's the only time you may, may get flown to the country for a visit. But your interviews are going to be all virtual. So be, just be prepared for that. Be prepared for um, sitting on the Zoom calls like you do now <laughs> um, and interviewing. And you may have multiple um, over a, a short period of time. Um, and then be prepared for the transition. This is the thing I think people often forget when they're going abroad. It's great to get the job. But how are you planning after you get the job for your cultural adjustment and coping skills? Don't forget that. Do the homework um, and make sure that it won't be perfect, but have some coping skills for those first few months. Culture shock is real. So those are kind of my tips of laying out the pathway for you. No, and those are those are great tips. I mean, I I think a good number of them apply whether or not it is higher ed that you're looking at. Um, because I guess in the in the COVID and post-COVID era, a lot of things right now are virtual, the hiring process, and and you may not get to go to the country before you start your job. Right. And that's, and that's been the way for a lot of things. And so, but I do like the fact that you mentioned that because you, you know, unless they are flying in every candidate, which men, most people are not, you need to expect that <laughs> you're not, you're not going to see the country, see the buildings. I mean, they may walk around with an iPad and give you a visual tour if you're lucky, but you're not going to have that. So, uh, but Carla, where can I, I, you know, where can everyone find you? I know we're, we're going to have it in the show notes, but I also like people to kind of shout out where is the easiest ways, easiest ways to find them. So where, where's the easiest way for people to find you if they want to talk more? So you want to talk more? Um... Find me on LinkedIn. I'm there. I'm active. I'm actively writing about higher ed and expat life. Find me on my IG page, roseapple.global. Um, on LinkedIn, just search me under Carla Fraser or search Roseapple Global. Um, but I'm across all social media. So you can find me on Pinterest. You can find me on um, Facebook as well. But IG and LinkedIn are the places you're going to, you can easiest catch up with me. I was, 
plus my website. I was on something and someone was like, yeah, I'm even on Pinterest. And I was like, Pinterest. I mean, I'm there, but it's <laughs> it's not it's not usually the place <laughs> where people I interview are not not for like their businesses or something. And it was just super funny. And it was someone I didn't expect either. They're like, yeah, we even got an active Pinterest. And I was like, really? I mean, I <laughs> I mean, truly, Pinterest is a great way for businesses if you can figure out how to make it work. I think the challenge is that you can make it work, but as your audience on Pinterest, that's just been me. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Good for you for being on Pinterest, though. Um, we will have <laughs> all of the links up on our site. So it'll be... Um, when this goes live, or obviously when y'all are hearing it, it is live. So we will have all the links available also in the show notes. And I always say this jokingly, but it's true. If you're trying to find someone <laughs> and you can't find them, just follow us on social media and go through our list. The person is probably there because we follow that often the true. people who are on the show or you know, I'm not going to encourage you to message us because that's just, I don't, I don't need those emails. So read the show notes all, but Carla, thank you so much for joining on the chatter. It's, you know, I, I always like hearing your insight, especially as someone who's been a long-term expat and, and, and truthfully, you've been in so many different environments that I, I think your expertise and knowledge is so truly valuable. Amanda, it's always great. And it's been great that you've created the global chatter and, you know, with my almost 10 years abroad consecutively now, this is definitely an experience um, that I appreciate you sharing with others. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm definitely, I'm sure I said this in the intro, but I'm going to say it again. Carla has been a longtime contributor of the Black Expat as well. And so if you haven't had a chance, she gives really good advice in her articles that she's written for the Black Expat. So you can just go on our site and search for that. We'll have a couple links to some of them in the various mediums where you listen to this podcast. But thank you all once again for listening to the Global Chatter. You can find us in all the locations <laughs> that you can imagine, including Facebook and, and the website, theblackexpat.com. We will catch you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.